San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. I'm talking today to City Hall reporter Dominic Fercasa about the alarming disparities in COVID-19 test results found among city zip codes. We're also talking about the city's new pledge to shut some roads to through traffic to allow for more space for pedestrians and bicyclists to keep their distance. Dominic Fercasa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. San Francisco has released some very interesting data showing which zip codes in the city have the highest rates of positive COVID-19 test results so far. And you have a really interesting story about that up now on sfchronicle.com. What did we learn? Yeah, so uh, this was a really kind of an interesting way that the city decided to um, create a visualization of the data that is coming in about confirmed COVID-19 cases. So just like you said, they they broke this uh, information down by uh, San Francisco zip code. So what we effectively have here, and this is, you know, available to anyone um, on the uh, San Francisco Health department's website. This is basically a heat map of where people uh, who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 live. So it is uh, uh, showing us... and this is this is something that was really interesting to see. Everyone from the mayor, from the uh, director of health on down, say this is you know sort of stark but unsurprising information. I mean, if you look at this map and look at where the cases are concentrated, they you know unfortunately, tragically in a sense, um, line up almost perfectly with where you would expect to see you know high levels of income inequality, high levels of of health inequality. In other words, uh, difficulty that certain populations faith at certain populations face accessing reliable health care I mean this this basically overlays with that so uh, you know cer- certain neighborhoods like the mission district in particular has been the hardest hit has the uh, highest number of known cases um, and you know that is largely attributable to you know economic inequality in, in a sense it is more difficult for you know people in certain economic brackets to you know access health care and to you know uh, um, stop working in certain certain fields. And and that has really contributed to the cases we're seeing. And it looked like um, the whole southeast part of the city had really high rates as well. Bayview, Hunters Point, Visitation Valley, mm-hmm. Turo Hill, um, all looked pretty high. And then there wasn't much at all really in the north and more west parts of the city. There's some, but not as much. Exactly. I mean, take, you know, uh, somebody who may be working a minimum wage job at a restaurant. Restaurants have stayed open. People who work in restaurants have still had to go into work. Whereas, you know, people who are in, you know, you know, more fortunate positions are able to work from home, for example, and don't have to keep going, going out into the world and putting themselves at risk. So that's really where I think this overlap between, you know, where you live in San Francisco and what your income bracket is looking like is having a real uh, impact on whether or not you uh, are at risk of or actually contract uh, COVID-19. And and like I said yesterday, watching this kind of, you know, parade of city officials explain this, they're like, yeah, this is this is stark but unexpected. So whether or not, you know, they're going to do anything about it is, is, <laughs> is kind of a longer term question. Yes. Yeah, so what were all the reasons cited by city officials? Like you said, a number of them addressed this at a press conference yesterday for why people in lower income neighborhoods are more susceptible to this disease. You mentioned one, which is that they're more likely to be um, essential workers still having to go to their jobs and go out in the world. What were some other reasons given? 
Well, one uh, uh, one in particular, if we look at, um, I believe it's 94107, which includes uh, the South of Market neighborhood. I mean, that is a home to uh, the city's largest homelessness shelter, uh, Multi-Service Center South. And as we know, uh, that is also the location of the largest outbreak of COVID-19 in San Francisco. So it has uh, also not only to do with what sort of job you're working, but also what your living situation is like, what your living conditions are. And, and it's one of the, the terms that keeps coming up and has for months now is congregate living settings or, or whether or not you have to live sort of clustered together, not just with neighbors in adjacent apartments, but also in your own household. Going back to the Mission District, for example, uh, Health Director Dr. Grant Colfax specifically mentioned yesterday um, households that are multi-generational, for example. So grandparents living with their kids and even their grandkids. That's a lot of people clustered together at a time when everyone is trying their hardest to stay away from other people. So these are the kind of things that lead to the additional transmission of COVID-19 and uh, contribute to why uh, these particular neighborhoods, these particular zip codes are seeing a, a, a spike in cases, unfortunately. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Dr. Colfax also mentioned that people who have more money can afford to get grocery deliveries or avoid the grocery store for 10 days, two weeks, because they have enough money to do a huge shop. Um, I know I've been doing that to try exactly. to feed my growing boys, but um, you know, <laughs> families who, who can't save up a few hundred dollars for that and have to go more often are putting themselves more at risk just by entering grocery stores again and again. Exactly right. If you're not accumulating those, you know, larger uh, paychecks, for example, and have to make a lot of smaller trips rather than go out for, as Dr. Colfax put it, one big shop, uh, you know, that's going to that's going to make it more difficult. And again, it leads to increased exposure uh, and and the risk of spreading that to to those around mm -hmm. you. I believe they also pointed out that people who own cars don't have to rely on public transit to write, to do their essential errands, whereas you know, needing to get on Muni or BART um, can be a problem as well for exposure. Exactly. And and I would I would also, you know, sort of assume that that would be intertwined with what kind of job you're working. Again, if you are an essential worker, need to, you know, use one of the, you know, few remaining Muni lines that are running currently, you're going to be just putting yourself out there again and again, risking contracting, risking spreading. And, um, and, and, and that is, I think, one of the main contributing factors here to, to how this sort of heat map is spread out. Right. And did they discuss any limitations of this data? Should people be worried about going to, you know, run an essential errand in the mission or to the Bayview or, you know, getting out in those neighborhoods for exercise? Or is that not really a concern? No, it's not. One of the things that the mayor and the health director stressed yesterday is that it is it, it, this is not to suggest that one neighborhood is safer or more dangerous than another. Right. So this is just sort of a way to plot the information we know about who has, you know, officially, if you will, or who is known to have contracted COVID-19. One of the main limitations here is, you know, based on the, the, the fact that everything we know about who has gotten the illness so far is based on whether or not they've been tested. So whether or not they've exhibited symptoms to their doctor and their doctor has given them the go-ahead to get a test, we're still, and this is true across the country, dealing with a, 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 a major shortage of testing. We're nowhere near being to the point where we can have so-called testing on demand, right, where anybody who needs a test or wants one can get one. So this is a really just a, a start from the starting point. We've got, you know, as of yesterday, I, I haven't seen today's numbers yet, but we're still, you know, hovering around just over 1,200 um, confirmed cases in 
San Francisco and, tw- and 20 deaths. So that's a really, at the outset, a really limited set of data to be working with when we think about, you know, where these cases are coming up in the city. So that's like the initial limitation that we have to be thinking about. Um, apart from that, you know, it, it's it's not to say that if you have to run an errand in the Mission District, you're at a, at a higher risk. So I don't think we should be thinking about things that way. I, I think the the perspective that the city is is put on this is that this has highlighted the disparities that exist in San Francisco right now. So it's not to say that the, you know, the bank in, in the Mission is safer inherently from COVID-19 than the bank in North Beach or, or Pack Heights or something like that. It, it's really more about the people who are living there each and every day and what their what their what their situations have have led them to as we you know have you know unfortunately fallen into this pandemic right uh the supervisors who represent these zip codes including um hillary ronan matt haney and shimon walton seem pretty upset by this data and kind of saying that their neighborhoods have been neglected for so long and this is just more proof of how unfair life is among different populations in san francisco um Do you think City Hall can do anything to improve the outcomes for residents in those neighborhoods, or are these such built-in inequities that it's hard to combat them? That's a really good question. Um, I I think there's sort of two parts about it. Like there's the initial, the sort of immediate response to uh, tackling COVID-19 and stopping the spread in these neighborhoods. And then there's the much longer term questions of how to correct these historic examples of, of, of economic inequality. And, you know, Dr. Colfax said himself, you know, structural racism, you know, the, the um, sort of um, official and unofficial redlining that happens in these neighborhoods. So I think what they've what the city has done is acknowledged in a really clear way the disparities that exist and has at least committed to you know sort of um shunting resources at these neighborhoods in order to uh, in order to ensure that that's that that the spread can be stopped there. So that means sending, you know, a lot more uh, translators and culturally competent sort of ambassadors from the health department to make sure that people in these neighborhoods understand what exactly the risks are. People, for example, who may not trust government officials because of their immigration status. Like that's the thing that the city can do right now to sort of plunge resources at the problem as it exists in these neighborhoods. But when we talk about, you know, structural racism, when we talk about economic inequality, those are much, much bigger questions and are going to have to be, you know, addressed over a, a longer period of time. But perhaps if nothing else, this will be a, a wake-up call for the city in general, pr- providing a platform for, you know, supervisors to sort of jump off of when it comes to tackling these more embedded problems. Um, so, I mean, if there is a silver lining, and maybe I'm stretching things here, it's the the attention that this has put on economic inequality, on people's inability to access health care in, in an equitable way. Um, so it, it's really called attention to... To, to these much bigger problems. But the immediate issue, of course, is stopping the spread of the disease and treating those who, who are able to, to fight it once they contract it. I'm Heather Knight, and I'll be right back with Dominic Fracasa. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Dominic Fracasa. You also have another interesting story up on sfchronicle.com right now about the city um, blocking some streets to through traffic during the coronavirus pandemic. Can you talk about the thinking behind these street closures? Yeah, it, this was an interesting one. So uh, San Francisco is actually following Oakland's lead in in saying like, look, 
and this is going to be true for anybody who has walked down the street and freaked out because a sweaty jogger was running at them and <laughs> they have to kind of swerve jogger. to get out of the way. I know, I know. So many, so many fluids happening in those situations. <laughs> but you, it's, it's, so what the San Francisco uh, Municipal Transportation Agency has said is, look, we are going to close uh, a certain small subset of city streets over the next couple of weeks so that people can feel a little bit more freed up to safely enter the street in an effort to keep away from everybody else. So we're all supposed to maintain at least six feet from people not in our household, right? This whole social distancing thing. Um, And it's going to be easier to do that if you don't have to be confined to the sidewalk, right? If you're able to sort of get into the street, avoid people and just, just create more space for yourself and for others. So again, you know, Oakland is, you know, planning on shutting down about 74 miles or about 10% of their total kind of road area. Um, San Francisco's proposal is a lot more limited right now. So what they're trying to do is to open up streets so that people can, you know, move about, bike and walk and run a little bit more freely, particularly they say in areas where um, Muni has already been shuttered. So like we mentioned before, um, Muni has really scaled back their operations in the face of COVID-19 for obvious reasons and to try to, you know, keep people from from being in close quarters with one another and from having to ride the bus and, and limit the possibility of exposure on, on public transit. So it's kind of interesting though, and this hasn't, you know, been a, a, a you know, a um, universally um, loved by everyone. You've got a lot of puzzling, a lot of head scratching over exactly how these routes were picked and why some were picked over others. There's a lot of concentration in kind of the west side of the city right now, not in denser areas. So it, it's sort of curious about why, uh, why and how they picked this, despite their rationale around trying to supplement muni lines or closed muni lines. Right. Um, so, so Oakland it, um, so, did the 74 miles on in one swoop, I believe, but San Francisco is rolling out its much more gradually. Do we know which streets are up first? We do. Um, and this is in the story as well. Um, so I was able to confirm with uh, the SFMTA. We know the first the first two closures, which uh, the uh, SFMTA is pledged to have closed down by no later than the end of this week. Um, and that is going to be 41st Avenue from Lincoln to Noriega and Page Street from Stanyan to Divisadero. So those are the first rounds of, of what's going to be um, a very, as you said, a very sort of piecemeal effort here. The, the agency, they've also left themselves a ton of leeway saying, look, here are the streets that we think are good candidates. We could close all or some or part of it. Um, we're not really tying ourselves down to any kind of mandate, which may make things a little bit confusing for for motorists in particular, I suppose, and also for people who are just trying to keep up with the city's efforts here. Um, but they've left themselves a ton of flexibility when it comes to actually implementing this thing. So it's it's really going to be, they're, you know, they're going to basically try to shut a few streets down with cones and signs, see how it goes, see if it leads to any unintended consequences tra- traffic-wise, and adjust if necessary. Do we know how long it would take for all of this to be closed that are on the map now? Not from not from SFMTA. I mean, they have the authority to go out and do it all right now, just like Oakland did if they want, right? So they they could they could go. They have the ability to do that, but um, I, I'm not sure why the um, the slower pace, the sort of more wait and see approach is being adopted. But they've certainly, um, as I said left themselves a ton of room to kind of um, do what they want. So it, it, this could, I mean, there are, I think, a total of 12 streets that are potential, you know, sort of good candidates for for this uh, slow streets program. Um, so that would take, you know, if they do a couple of weeks, we're, we're talking about, you know, maybe 
maybe like two months or something if they kept at this sort of really slow pace. Um, but maybe if the first go well, that might be a good harbinger for, for how the rest are going to go and how quickly they're willing to do it. And so cars would still be able to get in and out of people their own driveways and residents won't be affected, but you're just not supposed to use the street to get from point A to point B. Correct. Exactly right. If you need to go home, if you need to get back to your driveway, you're not going to, you know, have to sleep in your car uh, <laughs> overnight or anything like that. You will be allowed to to go home. It's just really for through traffic. That's what uh, what it's going to uh, be targeting. And um, just to play the devil's advocate here, the streets that they chose seem kind of arbitrary. I've been hearing a ton from people who want more street closures throughout the city so that they can um, run errands and exercise and be safe about it. But I have yet to hear anyone um, call out 41st Avenue in the Outer Sunset or Page Street <laughs> in the Hate. <laughs> those just seem yeah. like two kind of random first goes. Any idea why those were picked? Why they were picked as the first ones, I don't know yet. Um, I'm waiting on some follow-up questions right now about about why they were the first ones. I mean, why why the whole list was chosen is really still still puzzling people. Again, they said they did it to supplement these muni routes, but it it really is 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 head scratching. I mean, Supervisor Aaron Peskin came out kind of guns blazing against this. He tweeted today, I have no idea how SFMTA came up with this because apparently they didn't have time to reach out. Uh, at first glance, they seem more concerned with recreating in less dense areas than responding to requests to address social distancing needs of seniors and low income people of color in his district. So it's, it, it's, he's sort of, I think, um, speaking for a lot of people who are really um, going to be taking a close eye at how this is implemented. And, and and holding uh, 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 Muni's kind of feet to the fire about yeah. why and how this is being done. It seems like somebody who lived in the Sunset District must have been in charge because the vast majority of blocks are, are all there. Um, on the map is Kirkham, Ortega, 41st Avenue, 20th Avenue, long stretches of all of those. And then nothing in the Richmond, nothing in the whole north of the city. Only a couple of blocks on Ellis and the Tenderloin, which has been a big point of contention because there's 300 tents there now that are crowding the sidewalks and people really want to be able to run errands without having to walk into busy traffic. So that was kind of a, a puzzler. One th- Maybe one thing that, that the sort of flexibility, the wiggle room that Muni has left itself here, maybe that will mean that they will be more responsive to these concerns. And and that, that could you know mean mean good things for people who are trying to get more streets shut down during the epidemic or during the pandemic, I guess. And and so that that may be one kind of silver lining of of the the rather um, sort of airy, uh, not very airtight uh, way in which Muni has decided to go about this. And keep in mind, they could close portions of these streets. They could close, you know, the whole sort of eight blocks that that each um, each corridor. that's uh, kind of like the maximum that each could be shut down. So they, they could do all or nothing of what they've planned right now. They really have not boxed themselves into anything. And so maybe they'll take this feedback to heart. Mm -hmm. They've also um, separately already closed the road to Twin Peaks. Um, I believe that was because they didn't want tourists and um, people going up there in their cars and gathering. And then the Great Highway is shut um, because of all the sand on the road. So the whole um, sunset kind of west of Twin Peaks is doing really well in this arrangement, but (laughs) nothing else in the city. I think that one of the one of the um, even since the beginning, when people when people started to really get serious about social distancing, and and once the uh, we sort of got attacked by uh, Jake Tapper from CNN because people <laughs> were like walking and holding hands on the Embarcadero. What people have really said is, "Hey, let's close down JFK from mm-hmm. Golden Gate Park." Yep. You know that has been, um, I think, one of 
if not the most sort of coveted street closures for for you know not just pedestrian advocates who are out there each and every day calling on the city to make the to make San Francisco more friendly for walkers, bikers, runners. Um, I, I think that that is going to be an interesting thing to watch. The sort of converse part of that, the argument against closing it, is that well, if we close it to cars, that's going to be really attractive to everybody who wants to walk on it, and so we get more people coming to Golden Gate Park than we want. So I guess city officials are trying to strike the right balance, but um, I. I think there are a lot of um, there are a lot of concerns about the way uh, MTA has rolled out slow streets so far, or or at least how it plans to. Which I should note, um, the executive director of Walk San Francisco, one of the more prominent uh, pedestrian advocacy groups in the city, said this is a great start. You know, they'd like to see this woven into other sort of longer term systemic um, uh, uh, approaches to making the streets safer, uh, but that they like what they see so far, which I thought was kind of an interesting take from that particular organization. But like I said, there's a lot that we uh, need to wait and see about how MTA rolls this out and we'll be keeping track of it for sure. Great. Well, it's always good to talk to you and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Heather. Thanks so much. Thank you to Dominic Fracasa for joining me today, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.